Hey, good morning. Man, we are almost done with Nehemiah. We're going to knock out three chapters today. So uh, here's what I will not do. You ever heard the game, let's, let's make a deal? We're going we're gonna to make a deal this morning. And the deal is, if you all open your Bibles and keep your Bibles open during the duration of the sermon, I will not read chapter 9, 10, 11, or 12. I'll read one section, right? So just so you know, if this is your first time, we are not afraid of names, and we are not afraid of long passages in the Bible. We have trekked through Ezra and Nehemiah for ever since last fall, so we have not omitted any single name. So uh, just so you know, we're not scared. We're not scared to deal with the Word of God, but uh, I want to make a, I think chapters, the end of chapter 9, all the way through 13, I think they form one teaching unit. Uh, and one of the clues to that is actually in uh, chapter 9, verse 38, if you look at the bottom of your English Bibles, it'll tell you that in the Hebrew Bible, that's actually where chapter 10 begins. And so I think that's a unit from chapter 10, uh, 1, all the way through 13, verse 3, and I'll talk more about it. So I'm going to read chapter 9, verse 38, and then I'm going to skip and read 28 through 31, and then just follow along with me in the Bibles. I promise you, uh, I'll try my best to make it make sense, all right? So we're at the end of Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document. Here are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so when you see chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, it's the list of the names, but the theme is still this new covenant that they're entering into with God. And that, that theme picks up again in verses 28 through 31. So, and then the rest of the people, along with the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God with their wives and their sons and their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, we joined with their brothers, their nobles, and they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So notice right there that same theme of a covenant that he mentions in verse 38. They now bring up again in verse 29 of chapter 10. And we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell them, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. I'm gonna continue reading verse 32. And we also take on ourselves, look at again, the obligation, there it is again, to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. And we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring into the house of our God according to our father's houses at appointed times, there it is again, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And here it is again, we obligate ourselves 
to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our son and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests and to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithe to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers, and we will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I do ask right now that you would speak to your people through your servant. Father, a, a broken man stands before them, a man who is unworthy to handle the things of the law, a man who needs Jesus, just like us all. And so I do pray that you would be pleased to speak through me, that we might desire your law, that we might desire to walk in it and to keep it, that our obedience would be fueled by the right motivation and that we would do the hard work at working to obey the Lord for it is pleasing in your sight. Would you unpack this by your spirit that your name would be praised for Jesus' sake, amen. So that's the deal. The deal is we only read a section, but we're gonna unpack all through Nehemiah 13. Here's the thing, if you've been tracking with us in Nehemiah chapter nine, if you were with us last week, well, two weeks ago, actually, the big idea was this theme of confession. And so if you remember that they read the book of the law and after they read it, they read it for a fourth of the day, right? And then they spent another fourth of the day and all they did was sort of blot it out and confess their sins before the Lord. And so the question that I sort of want to ask us this morning is what they're describing really is a picture of biblical repentance. That biblical repentance, it, 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 it's nothing more or nothing less than the word of God when it comes upon us and we read it or approach it. And our first response to it is inadequacy, that the, that the word of God starts to search our hearts and it gets us to this place where we haven't kept it. We have not kept it fully. We cannot keep it fully. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And in that place, we comprehend the depravity of our hearts. We comprehend our utter inability to keep it. And we get that out in the open with public confession. And so that's what they did. The word of God came and they, they measured themselves up against it. And out of their mouths come confession of sin. And God is saying, it is up to you to confess sin. It's up to me to cover it. Right. And so this whole idea of covering our sins, that's a God prerogative. God says, you don't cover. You let me do the covering of your sins in Jesus and you do the confessing. You get all of your junk, all of your transgressions. You get that out in the open. And I promise you, I will cleanse you. Right. Now, here's the thing. What's the next thing after confession of sin? That if you were to, to, to define what repentance is, does repentance end with simply confessing our sins? And the answer is no. That biblical repentance goes further than that. 
that it actually moves us to this place of not just confessing the way that we have broken the law, but if it's real biblical repentance, it brings us to a place where we actually want to obey the law. Now, how do I know this is right? I know this is right because it's in our text this morning, but I also know it's right because we're, we are a confessional church and it's always good just to make sure that uh, what I'm preaching is in line with our confession. And so what I want to do is sort of read what the Westminster Confession. Now, it is not the Bible. The Bible is the sole authority, but we are a confessional church. And there are times when men older than us and wiser than us have taken this Bible and have summarized its teaching in a way that's really helpful. And so listen to what the confession says. Repentance is a saving grace where a sinner out of a true sense of his sin or her sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, he does or she does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from his sin and turn to God with a full purpose and endeavor after a new obedience. You hear what the confession is saying, that it is a repentance is not just weeping and crying and being sorrowful over sin. Repentance is not just seeing our deficit and seeing our inadequacy. Biblical repentance is turning from sin and turning to God offered to us in the gospel through Jesus. And then it finds its way in obedient, an obedient lifestyle where the very law of God that convicted us is now the very law of God that's shaping our behavior moving forward. That's what repentance is. Let the thief who stole no longer steal is what Paul would say. And then let him go and work. But then what does Paul say? Real repentance shows up when you get a job, buddy, and when you can provide for yourself and you can help those in need. Do you see how the pendulum swings? It swings from stealing to working to actually doing the law where you're working and giving that that's a picture of repentance. And that's what you see in the text. They confessed their sins last week, and this week they want to obey the very sins that they have been confessing. And so if I were to ask you what follows confession of sin, the answer is endeavoring to obey anew. That obedience is as much of the gospel of Jesus as the atonement is. I mean, this whole idea that Jesus saved me so that I can go and be empowered by the Spirit to actually keep the law that has accursed me. And so obedience is this path that these persons are on. And so what I want to do is sort of look at their obedience. And you see it. Look at what, look at what it says in verse 29 that they join with their brothers, their nobles, to enter into a curse and an oath. Now, right here, to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Matter of fact, if you want to go over to chapter 10 and look at the end of verse 34, so everything that they're doing in the house of the Lord 
as it is written in the law. Go down to verse 36. And also to bring to the house of the Lord our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law. And so what you see in this text is there is this insatiable desire to obey, 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 keep the law, keep the law. Now, notice what it says. It says the first thing is that we want to walk in God's law. And that imagery for walking, it's this, this imagery of a leisurely stroll down the pathway of righteousness. It's like taking an, an afternoon walk and it's not to go and work out. This is a leisurely stroll to walk around your neighborhood and take your time. And that's what they're endeavoring to do. We want to leisurely walk in the way of God's law. But that's not just it. It also says that we want to observe it, right? We want to observe and do. So those two things, we want to walk and then we want to observe. Here's, here's a, a, I think, a helpful analogy. Whenever we go to Florida, and it can be, it was RUF Summer Conference or just vacationing, your GPS will all, I mean, for us, it would always take us, we would go to Destin or Panama, somewhere in the area, we would get down through Mobile and get over to Pensacola, and then you start to get, uh, you start to get in near the beach, and you, you always had this option, right? You can stay on the interstate and just keep going, and the speed limit is 70, and you can just go, or there's a scenic route. And the scenic route, you know, I hate them. I, I detest, I loathe them, right? <laughs> I don't like traffic lights. And my agenda is I just want to get to the beach. I, when I, I don't need to see every little beach town, right? I don't need the speed limit to be reduced to 35. I don't want stoplights. I don't want traffic. I just want to get to the beach. And so I ignore the scenic route. Well, here's what's happening. They want the scenic route of God's law. I don't want to rush through it. I want to take my time and let it marinate. This is not microwave. This is crock pot, cook some meat, let it smoke all night type stuff. But that's what they want. I want to observe. I want to pay attention to what I see in the law. And it's more than just seeing and savoring. He also says we want to do it. And so that will be equivalent to taking the scenic route, saying no to quit getting there and, and, and this leisurely stroll. But it would say yes to not just looking at the beach and not just looking at the water and not just looking at the, sand, the, the seashells. The, the, this, this idea of doing it means that I actually want to pull my car over and get out and walk and get sand between my toes. I want to go step into the ocean. I want to experience what I'm seeing. And so when they say we're not just speeding through the law, we want to take our time with it. We want to see it and savor it. We want to put our feet in it and do it, right? That's an outworking of biblical repentance. The very law that crushed us is now the word of God that is beautiful. We want to behold it. Now, when I say obedience, I think what they're doing here is they're laying out what obedience looks like. It looks like it does obeying the Lord. There is this negative side of it, right? That if you want to obey the Lord, it is saying no to some things. It is saying no to sin, but it doesn't just stop 
with saying, well, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. That's a part of it. There's another part of it where I'm going to say yes to the things of the Lord. So it's a both. It's a no, I won't do this. And yes, I will do this. And that's what you see in the text. It says, no, we will not let our daughters and our sons marry the people of the land. Right. That's the first thing he says. The second thing is, no, we will not buy food or grain from the people of the land when they try to sell it on the Sabbath. Right. He says, no, we will not harvest our crops in the seventh year. The seventh year is a Sabbath unto the Lord. And so even though crops are growing, we will not take them. You see the thing that it's a no. We won't let them intermarry. We won't buy their grain on the Sabbath day. We won't harvest these crops in the seventh year. Now, here's the question. What's behind all of that? Well, the first thing, God is not against Israel marrying the people around them because of their color. Right. This is not a racial issue. And we talked about this a long time ago. You can put two black people together, a white and a black person, an Asian and a white person together. And God says, so long as they love Jesus, that blessing, that marriage is blessed in the Lord. This is not a racial discriminatory act of God where you aren't uh, you can't marry someone outside of your race. This is do not marry someone outside of your faith. This is you, Jewish man. You cannot go. You should not go and marry a woman who does not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And you, Jewish girl who worships the one true God. I don't care how good he looks. I don't care how much money he got. I don't care how fine he is. If he does not love the Lord, your God, he is off limits. And so that's what they pledge to do. We will not do this. The second thing is we will not buy grain on the Sabbath day. Now, why is that important? Because it's really important. The Sabbath is what set Israel apart from the nations. That when they were delivered out of bondage in Egypt, it was Pharaoh who was on them. Do more work, do more work, do more work with less bricks. Take no days off. I need you to get my money. I need you to get my bricks. And it is when the Lord delivers them. He says, I'm not like him. I want you to rest. I want you to work and I want you to rest because I'm God. And when you rest in me, I will give you enough. You are not what you do. I run the earth. You don't. So you can take a rest from work. When he tells them, don't harvest your grain in the seventh year, it's that seven day principle taken to the next layer of a yearly calendar. For six years, I want you to work and plant and harvest and sow and reap. But in the seventh year, you let your ground rest. You see, this is a faith issue. Are you going to let me be God or are you going to be God or try to be? But it's not just avoiding these things, right? Avoid this, avoid this, avoid this. Notice also what they are positively doing. And that's what you see in verses 32 through 39 of chapter 10. If you have a pen and you write in your Bibles, if you want to underline the theme of this of chapter verses 32 through 39, it is the house of our God. Look at it. We also take on ourselves. So now not only will we not do those things, but now we take on some things that we're going to positively do the service of the house of our God. Look at the end of verse 33. 
the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Look at verse 34. We, the priests, the Levites and the people have cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of the house of our God. Look at the end of, 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 of end of verse 35, that we will bring all of our fruit of every tree year by year to the house of our Lord. You can trace the theme that every single verse in that section, it's about the house of the Lord. So they will not do these other things. That's what they're going to not do. But then what they are going to positively do is focus on making sure that the house of the Lord, their God is in operation. We will give wood and we will have Levites and we will have priests. And so obedience in this text is casted as avoiding and pursuing. Avoiding that which God says don't do and pursuing that which God says we should be pursuing. Now, how serious are they with their obedience? This is bottom-up obedience, and what do I mean? This isn't top-down where God is saying, you obey me, and thundering from a mountain. This is actually bottom-up where the people themselves say, we will do it. We want to do it. How serious are they? They actually says in verse 29, we enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. How much of God's law do they want to want to obey? They said all of it. Think about that. How serious are they about obeying the law? They says all of it, all of it, every jot, every tittle, all of it, every single part of it we want to do. And how serious are you? We enter into a curse and an oath. We put this curse upon ourselves that if we don't keep all of the law, Lord, you strike us down. And if we do keep all of the law, Lord, you bless us. Now, I know we want to look at that passage and think, oh, stupid Jews. Like, right. Like we look at that on this side of the cross as as gospel Christians who and we see the fullness of the gospel and we can look at that. Oh, what are they thinking? No one can keep the law. Why would you put a curse upon yourself? You're going to die, right? We can look at that with, and I think it's in our arrogance, right? I think in our arrogance, we understand the rest of the story, but we don't let what they're doing totally impact us. What you have right here in this moment, forget what they just did in Nehemiah 9. And forget what they're going to do in Nehemiah 13. I'm going to go ahead and tell you every single thing they vow to do, they do not do. And the book of Nehemiah ends with God's people needing a better Nehemiah. And his name is Jesus. But don't ignore Nehemiah 13 and ignore Nehemiah 9. Right here in Nehemiah 10 through 12, you know what they want to do? They want to obey all of the law, all of it. Now, here's the thing. Is that right? The answer is yes. If you look at this and you think, oh, it's not that important. If you look at what they're saying, oh, it's not a big deal. We have Jesus. I'm telling you, the law of God will lose its power on your life if you don't first and foremost see this is not a recommendation. This is not a suggestion. This is the holy, inerrant, good law of God.
And I think so often we look at law and we think I'm, I'm saved. And so it doesn't apply to me. And here's the thing. It does apply to you. That a fruit of our repentance, Christian, is not just sorrow when we go to the cross. A fruit of our repentance is endeavoring to keep the law by the spirit of God. And so I can say to you like this. That behind what they see, the law is telling them not to do. I think they're also seeing what the law is promising. See, the law says don't marry a woman or a man who is not a believer. And I know if we look at that with natural eyes, it looks constricting. It looks like God is limiting my freedom. It looks like he does not have my best interest at stake. But on the back of that, Christian, the back of that commandment, you know what God is saying? He says, baby, I want you to have a husband who will lay down his life for you. I want you to have a wife who will love you and honor you and worship me and disciple your children. And I know, according to the flesh, you think I'm withholding something from you, but it's not. I know what's good and I know what's right. And I want what's best for you and I want what's best for me. And so by the eyes of faith, I think they can see. And so when it tells them, don't buy grain on the Sabbath, I know it looks like from the natural eye, man, guys, you're just trying to keep me from getting my money up. Are you trying to keep me from getting this food? And God says, no, you don't understand. When I tell you to rest on the Sabbath, I'm making a promise to you as your God to provide for you. When I tell you you can't go out and work on the Sabbath, I'm pledging myself to you on the sixth day to give you what you need. Now, will you try to do this on your own or will you let me be God and provide for you? When he says, don't harvest your crops in the seventh year, you go back and you read Leviticus and you go back and read Deuteronomy. Do you know the promise there? The promise there is if you will not harvest in the seventh year, he says, you let me be God. I will give you enough in the sixth year so that you're eating in the seventh and the eighth year from stuff I gave you in the sixth year. You see, behind all of these commandments is a provision where God is saying, I will be your God and I will keep my word. And so this whole endeavoring to obey the Lord anew it's a mark of our repentance. Getting to that place where we actually behold the goodness of God and his commandments and they aren't burdensome and they are for our good. Now, the second thing is, all right, we get that. I get it, Pastor L. I'm supposed to desire to obey. And right here in this moment, I've been caught in sin or I'm confessing my sin and I'm getting it out there. And right here in this point in time, I want to obey. I want to obey. I hear what Jesus says. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. I hear what Jesus is saying. If you love me, you will obey me. Right. But here's the thing. I want this right now. How do I do it? Tomorrow when temptation comes. How do I do it next week when temptation comes? They're right here, right now. I really want to obey. The second thing you see in the text is they actually had a plan to obey. And I know that sounds like so anticlimactic, right? Obey, obey, desire to obey. It's a mark of repentance. Yes. Well, how will I obey? 
You got to plan for it. Now, here's what I mean. Every single thing that they had pledged to do, you do know that the rest of our passage shows us how they planned on doing it. Let me show you what I mean. They said in verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land in marriage, right? So that, that's, that, that's, that, that's what we're telling. We will not give our daughters and sons into marriage for the people of the land. Well, Pastor L, how, how, how are they going to put some meat on that? How are they going to put some feet on that? How are they going to do it, right? Well, look at what it says. It says that they withdrew. They withdrew from the people of the land. Look at verse 28. And all who have separated themselves from the people of the land to the law. Look at, look at 13, chapter 13, and go to, the end, uh, go to verse 3. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated themselves from the people. They separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So you hear what he just did? All right, we're not going to let them marry. Well, Pastor Hale, how, how are you going to keep them from getting married? We're going to withdraw. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that's like a plan. Like, if they're living over here and we're living right here, if we're no longer intimately connected, then that's the plan. The plan is we will not have these deep and intimate relationships anymore. In order to obey, we have to remove ourselves. Like, th that's the plan to obey, right? There's more though, right? There, look at the next commandment. What else did they say that they would do? They said that we will not. And if the people of, look at verse 31, if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Now think about that. So for, we will not buy goods on the Sabbath. Well, tell me, how are you going to do that? Well, if, if you were selling goods in Israel, guess where you would come? You would come to the gate. You would come to the wall around the city. There was actually a fish gate where they would come and sell fish. There's a water gate where water was brought into and out of the city. In other words, the gates, that, that, that's where the other nations would come to sell their produce. They would come to the gate and they would set up a small marketplace and, and, and they would sell it. Now, here's the thing. What do you have to do to protect your people from buying food on the Sabbath at the gate? You know what you do? You put up some gatekeepers, right? And, and that's exactly what you see in verse 19. And the gatekeepers, I mean, I'm in verse 19 of chapter 11. Look at, look at it. The gatekeepers, Akub and Talmon and their brothers who kept watch at the gates, we're 172. So how will you keep me from buying grain on the Sabbath at the gate? You put up gatekeepers to watch the gate. That's what we're going to actively do to keep us from disobeying. All right. How will we, Lord, you tell us that the next thing he says, we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Like how in the world, Lord, can we get enough food to eat? So that in the seventh year, we don't have to plant crops. And that is really perplexing. And what they did was absolutely beautiful. It's the 90%, 10% rule that you see being worked out in this text. 
How will they have enough crops so that in the seventh year, they're not cropping, I mean, they're not sowing and harvesting. You know what they're gonna do? They're gonna say 90% of y'all, y'all go back home and you go farm and you go raise cattle and you plant vineyards. That's what you do. And you know, we're, you know what they're going to do? Those people who are planting vineyards and not staying in Jerusalem, but they're going out, they're going to still have their way of life. And what are they going to do? They're going to tithe. Every single year, they're going to bring in the first fruits of their dough. They're going to bring in the first fruits of their sons and daughters. They're going to bring in the first fruits of their animals. In other words, the way that they would keep this commandment is by 90% of them living out there and raising crops and tithing off of their crops and bringing their crops and their land and everything back into the temple, into the storehouse, and they're going to store it. They're going to store it up in the middle of the city so that when the seventh year comes, guess what? They got food and they can honor the commandment. What about the house of the Lord? How will you care for the house of the Lord and pour resources out there? Ah, we got that solved too. We're going to take the 10%. The 10% will go and live in Jerusalem. The 90% will stay out there and the 10%. Now, where am I getting this from? I'm going to show you right in the word. Look at verse chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people casted lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem while nine out of 10 remained in their towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so what you get is this list. You get this list of all the men who came into the city. And then when you get to verse 25 of chapter 11, you get all the people who stayed in their villages. And that is how they are going to keep the law. 90% go out there and you work hard for us. And 10% of you, you move in here and you trust us and we all together trust God and we keep his commandments. That's the plan for obedience. Obedience was not just something they said they were going to do, that there was this plan that they did by the spirit of God to actually keep what they intended to do. And what you see in chapters 12 is they did it. They dedicated the temple. The people moved in. Some people moved out. And there is the joy of the Lord that is saturating all of Jerusalem. Obedience without specificity and thoughtfulness and planning won't work. You know, you'll never stumble into being more holy. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and arbitrarily obey the Lord more. You don't haphazardly become more holy. We don't just by chance wake up one day without force and without planning and without intentionality to obey the things of the Lord. Think about the way that, that some of us lived when we were in the world. That when I was in the world, I plotted and schemed and I planned to sin. I know what I wanted to wear to the club that night. I know what kind of cologne I want to wear. I know I want to wash my car, right? I know all of this stuff. And so I know what club I want to go to, right? This is all planning and posturing so that I can sin. And here it is. Why do we think that we can be more godly with no planning? 
It's not going to work. So take a couple, for example, who says, Pastor L, I'm convicted in the word that I'm not managing our money well. And right there, the spirit is at work. That is great. You are a steward. You are not an owner. Right? Right there. But here's the thing. Unless that couple sits down with a budget and puts some meat on that plan, it's just an idea. Unless you know when payday is, unless you know when you're prone to blow the budget, unless you can track expenses, unless you can have this sit down every two weeks with your spouse to go over what's being spent, your idea to manage money is just a dream, baby. Until it shows up tangibly in something you can touch, a budget that you can manage, right? That's just how it works. Think about the, the movie War Room. If, some of you have seen it. I know Monica showed it to our women's ministry team about a year ago. I won't give the whole movie away, but in War Room, there's a woman and her marriage is kind of falling apart. And she meets an older woman who is trying to sell her house. And so the woman is a realtor and she sort of goes into this older woman's house and she's trying to find out comps and she's trying to say, oh, OK, hey, I'm just here to handle business. Let me see your house. Let me see how big it is. All I want to do is get it on the market, get it sold. Well, the older woman is a believer, and her husband died, um, I guess, 20 years prior. And she goes through all of her favorite rooms in the house, and she finally says, but this is my favorite room. And it's a little closet. And she says, I call it my war room. And when you walk into the closet, all it has is scripture verses. It has this sheet of answer prayers where this lady writes down every single prayer she's asked God for and it's there as a memory and she writes down everything that she's praying for and, it, and it, it's an unimpressive room but the old lady makes a powerful statement this is where we go to war for our lives and for our families it's not out there fighting our husbands it's right here on my knees in prayer in this closet and so she pushes the younger woman do you want to pray and she's like i struggle with it you know, she says, put some meat on it. Go carve out a room and get you some pen and paper and you start writing and put post-it notes up. Whatever you have to do when the spirit is striking right there, act on it. Put some meat on it. And so I, I say that to us because I think it's so easy as millennials, especially like we don't like disciplines. We don't like this whole idea that I'm reading the Bible and I'm checking my box off because it sounds so legalistic. And I'm pushing back saying, baby, if you don't have plans to be more godly, you're not going to stumble into it. You got to put forth effort. You got to do some stuff to aid you. And here is why. Because we are diabolical. If you know yourself honestly, you know that right here, right now, we want to pray. And we know in two hours, I want to go to sleep. We know right here, right now, I want to manage my money, but I know next Monday them new J's going to drop and I'm going to want them new J's, right? <laughs> I'm just telling you, I, I'm, I'm being really honest, that, that that's how it is, that we are diabolical people, that right here in this moment, we can want it, want it, want it, and then I tell you, your zeal will wane. And one of the ways that you and I can pursue obedience in a healthy way 
is to actually strike while the iron's hot. You say you want to read the Bible more? You got to go to bed the night before. Right? You got to set the little alert on your Fitbit that tells you to wind down. That if you have a problem with looking at illicit images on your smartphones and on your computer screens, right? You can't just talk about it. Like, when are you going to put the plan together to hand that stuff over? Go get a dumb phone, right? If, if, if you, really, go get something that does not get you on the internet. I'm being really honest. Like, I think a lot of times when the desire is there, we don't go far enough. We don't go farther into this whole idea that for me to be more godly, I actually have to do some work. You want to be a better husband? Put a date night on the calendar and come home, right? If you don't, this world will pull you in a lot of different directions. It does not care about your wife or your time or your marriage or your children. And so we will have to, have to, have to plan to honor the Lord with our spouses. We want our kids to know more scripture. We just got to make it a habit to read for five minutes when it's chaotic. Like it, it, it just it won't happen unless our desire to obey is met with this real sense that I will plan to do it. And this makes perfect sense, right? The Lord does not arbitrarily just want to save people. Paul says in Ephesians that there was a plan hidden for the ages that he is now revealed. And so your very salvation was not abstract. The father planned it out. I don't just want to save you. I have a plan to do it and my son will do it, right? So this whole idea of planning, it is a godly biblical discipline that is for us and our obedience. And so I ask each one of you, what are some areas in your life where you're struggling and conviction is there and confession is there? What's the plan, homeboy? Are you going to put some feet on this? Are you going to make this thing walk out in your life? That's what you see in this passage. They're not just giving God lip service about caring about the Sabbath. They're not just giving God lip service about caring about the city. They got a plan. 90% will stay and raise crops. 10% will go in. We're going to put gatekeepers up because I know my heart. I might want to go buy some corn on the Sabbath. It's show looking yellow, right? Let's put some gatekeepers up to protect us. I'm telling you, planning is not opposed to your sanctification. It is a tool and a benefit that God gives us. I'm going to close with this last point. What's driving all of this? What's fueling the planning? What's fueling the obedience? And here's the thing. I think the most important passage in this whole section is in verse 38. Because here, here, uh, look here first. I'm going to come back to verse 38 of chapter 9. If you're not a believer and you're walking in and you hear me pounding, obey, 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 and you hear me pounding, make plans to obey, your temptation might be to think that I'm preaching, we obey so that God will love us and desire us. And I'm telling you, that's not what I'm saying. 
When you look at verse 938, notice what it says. It says, because of all of these things, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. In other words, what are they talking about? They're saying because of what we saw in the passage prior to the one that we're in today, because of everything that we talked about back here, I now want to obey here. What did they discover about God in Nehemiah 9? That they're sinners. That every time God delivered them, they turned back and went to their sin. He brought them out of Egypt and they grumbled and complained that he brought them into land flowing with milk and honey and they turned away from him to other gods. He sent them into Babylon. And here's the point. They were sinning over and over again. But you want to know what had the last word. It was not their sinfulness. It was God's faithfulness and God's kindness. Even though you cast us out, you brought us back. Even though we were stubborn and hard hearted, you forgave us. Even though we kept giving our ourselves over to the gods of the nations you sent deliverers up year by year your faithfulness is paramount in other words when they are wanting to obey in Nehemiah 10 11 12 and 13 what's driving all of that it's the faithfulness of God they had tasted his mercy they had responded to mercy. His, ge his generosity and his loving kindness is what's driving them to want to obey. That's what's fueling their obedience. And I love it because you can't really pick one thing. I mean, if you, I don't want you to do it, but if you were to go back to Nehemiah 9, I mean, pick something. Just, just literally put your hand down on a verse and you see something new. So look at verse 16 of chapter nine. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow in anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Look at verse 18 of chapter nine. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God. Look at verse 19. But you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Look at, at verse 19. The pillar of the cloud to lead them in the day did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night. So in other words, when you go back, just put your hand on a verse and you see something new about God. Is it because you never left us and never forsake us? Is it because you redeemed us from the pit? Is it because you sent us deliverers? Is it because you never withdrew your presence? And they're saying it's all of the above. Pick something. And that is worthy for me to worship and obey the Lord. It's what he has done. So I want to close with one let me go back. All right. They did more than what they realized, right? Because they said, Lord, we enter into a curse and an oath with you. And Nehemiah 13, they had broke, they, they, they were already undone. And here's the thing. The beautiful good news about the gospel is what you see in Galatians 3. I think Galatians 3 needs to be read directly on top of this, I mean, listen to what Galatians chapter 3 says. 
For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What did they just tell God? We want to do all things, all of it. And what Paul says is, Cursed is the person who does not do all of it. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Look at verse 13. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we receive the promised spirit through faith. You hear what Paul says in Galatians. Those cats in Nehemiah 9 had no idea what they were doing. You cannot keep the law. And cursed is the man or woman who breaks one of them because you're guilty of them all. But praise be to God, because Jesus Christ kept all of the law and secured our righteousness. And he became the curse to take away our judgment. And that, my friend, is the gospel motivation to obey the law of the Lord. Your Savior has delivered you. Close with this. Let's say that you had a, let's say you, you, you love to be around animals, right? And you had an uncle who owns his own veterinarian clinic. And let's say you're 11th grade, about to go, I see you, I see you, Hannah, I see you peeping, I know, she wants to be a vet, all right? But let's say you have an uncle who owns a, a veterinarian clinic, and you're going into your senior year of high school, and you've been working with him every summer. And finally, he comes and tells you, he says, hey, I just want you to know, I know you got to go to school next year. You got a lot of choices to make. But I want you to know that for the past 20 years, I've been putting a little money aside and there's a scholarship for you waiting at Tuskegee. And so all of your friends are trying to go to other schools and they're trying to work out financial aid. But your uncle has told you, I've already paid for your education. And suppose he says, I want to one up you, right? I want you to go there and go for free. And then here's the thing. I'm going to hire you as an intern right now. And every summer, I want you to come work for me. And every summer you go to school, but you come back and you work for me. And in the mornings, I will teach you the science of veterinarian. I will teach you how to care for animals. And in the evenings, I will teach you the business. And suppose that there is no other clinic within 100 miles, and so you have the market. There is no competition that you have people on the waiting list to get their animals treated. And it's close to, like, Atlanta, so you can kind of dip in for an Atlanta Falcons game or an Atlanta Hawks game, and then you can come back, you know, so you don't have to deal with traffic. And then suppose he tells you that, hey, in your junior year, I'm going to build a new clinic. And I'm going to retire in your senior year and I'm going to give you the new clinic and the new clinic will have all of the state of the art technology. Now, here's the thing. Why would you choose to go to Tuskegee and why would you choose to follow the path of your uncle? You could not name just one thing. 
Is it the fact that you have an internship when all of your friends are looking for internships? Is it the fact that you have the blessing of being near a big city, but small city life? Is it the fact that you have a job guaranteed? Is it the fact that you have no competition and you can corner the market on this thing and make it really good? Is it the fact that you have state of the art equipment? Is it the fact that he's going to give it, give it over to you for you to run when you in just seven years? Here's the thing. It's not just one thing, right? Pick something. The whole package is good. The case that the gospel makes to you in light of the mercies of God, pick something about Jesus and about the gospel that is precious. Is it the fact that God is going to return in majesty and might and he will pour out his wrath on his enemies and he will look at you and say, this isn't for you. You come on in. Right. Is it the fact that your father says in my father's house, there are many rooms, there are many mansions? Is it the fact that God has taken away all of your guilt and all of your shame? Is it the fact that God has given you all of the righteousness of Jesus? What is it, Christian? And here's what I'm telling you, that if we are going to obey, then we have to start taking a fine tooth comb to the goodness and the mercies of God. It's not just one thing. He says, spin the wheel and pick something. I'm that good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you will help us to see obedience in a really positive light. It is a good thing to obey the Lord. Your commandments are not burdensome. And we, we get glimpses of that in our lives. Father, help us to have the fortitude and the wisdom to flush out those areas in our lives where we're weak and to come up with plans, plans to obey, plans to keep your law. Lord, I pray that we would see that this is not to win your favor, that Jesus has done that. He has taken the curse of the law from us and given us the blessings of keeping the law in himself. And therefore, what fuels our obedience is not to win your favor. It's because we have it in Christ. I pray that you would do this by your spirit. Make us holy. Through your law, which is good for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.